Glad to see everybody that made it back out tonight. My best advisor said to smile more, so I'm going to smile tonight. And it's really the good part tonight. We'll see some positive things that start, start happening in the history of man. So as we recap from what we talked about this morning, there was a gradual move from the New Testament church to something that did not resemble the New Testament at all. The hierarchy of the church had enriched themselves and become so empowered that they became a class of their own. And they maintained that power by keeping the masses illiterate and in fear for their soul and in many cases for their life. And contrary or almost exactly opposite of what had happened to the early church where Christians were persecuted, the church was persecuting people who did not fall in line with what they wanted them to do. And we, we ended this morning in what we know as the dark ages, a dark time for lots of people in lots of ways, but uh, a sad time in the history of the world. But during the end of that time, starting about the year 1300 to 1500, you started seeing some signs of change. Somebody asked me, was there a remnant of the church? And was there, I'm sure there were always faithful people, but... When we talk in generalities, this was the general conditions of what was going on. There was a great need for something to change. And we talked briefly about these, but there were four main points that kind of sprung the last part of the Dark Ages and, and turned the tide towards the, the Reformation. The celibacy of priests had become more and more an issue. It had been practiced by this time for about three or 400 years. And again, to put that in context, the United States has been around about 240 years. So for longer than the United States has been a country, that was the practice in the year 1300. So it had been going on for a long time. In spite of what the Bible very clearly says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 through 3, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, and one of the traits of those that depart is they forbid to marry. So it seems so obvious to us, but that's where it had gotten to, that people were not exposed to the Bible, they didn't treat it like it was supposed to, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years had occurred, and it had gotten a long ways away from the truth. We talked briefly about this. Simony is the name of this, named after Simon the sorcerer, who thought he could buy things with money, spiritual things with money. And the church made millions of dollars, from this practice, they sold church offices like bishops, bishoprics, and they sold their services, often purchased by rich people who never occupied the office, never tried to fulfill the office. Sometimes it was used so their kids could get set up. And you think about all the, the kinds of favors that get done. That's what was happening. One of the popes, Leo the Ninth, is reportedly made over a million dollars one year for about ten years uh, selling the offices and funded all sorts of building programs. wasn't all just money for him some of it was but a lot of the fancy cathedrals and things that you see uh, that were built in that time frame were paid for this way indulgence uh, kind of became the real cornerstone it was a monetary charge for sin you can say you're sorry but if you're really sorry you're going to pay me some money and that's what the church held over people and it even got to a point you could buy those ahead of time reminds me of, the, of a roommate I had once when I told him I went to church three times a week he said, boy, you must be really bad. <laughs> and that was the barter system that, that came with people's souls. And that's what they lived with, and that's what they expected. Volunteers to fight in the Crusades, they couldn't necessarily conscript them or draft them into the army, 
But even better than that, they gave them a full indulgence. If you'll fight the war for me, you're good forever. You're going to be in heaven no matter what happens. And so they had people going along with that. You could atone for dead family members and friends. There were even indulgent salesmen that could go out and sell indulgence, and they got a cut of the money that was, that was made. Some of the things I read said that only 30 or 40% of the money, by the time everybody got their cut off of these things from the ground up, about 30 or 40% of the money made it back to Rome. Everybody else was taking a cut of it. That was the corruption that was going on. Finance these big building projects, and again, it was the single biggest cause of the Protestant Reformation. You think people had no money to even feed themselves? And the church was spending lavishly for corrupt reasons, and it caused people to think. Hagiolatry, a word I didn't even know. I had to look it up, but I've, I've seen it practiced. It's the worship of departed saints, the worship of the Virgin Mary, those types of things that you don't read about in the Bible. That was officially began and sanctioned near the year 800. Nuns prayed to saints to hide their sins rather than to God. These prayed to saints so that they could not get caught, and it got more and more corrupt. Uh, it's not an official saint now, but now in our day and age, the way the superstitions have continued on, there's even a patron saint of drug dealers. And so it's, it's crazy how these things can take off and, and run. Relics and statues gained a lot of popularity. And so now even today, you can see all sorts of St. Christopher and all sorts of religious relics that had their beginnings in this time frame. Things you didn't read about in the Bible, but gained popularity and became a part of the worship. Again, a far cry from the very simple prayers to God through Christ that we see in the New Testament. And what we see is the Catholic Church had become the greatest force on earth physically and spiritually, but it produced the biggest corruption probably ever known to mankind. They had defiled things that were sacred. They had turned them into a money-making, and the need for reform was apparent. So there were several people that towards the end of the 1300s, we're going to read about uh, or talk a little bit about the Renaissance. You probably remember that from history. All this stuff started about the same time, about the year 1300, where you read of, the, of this uh, William of Ockham from England, all of this started kind of taking place at the same time. William of Ockham, he's famous. If you've heard of uh, Ockham's Razor, it's a philosophical term, and, and it's a, named after him. Basically, it said that the best solution is generally the simplest solution, and he came up with that philosophically, but that's what he used to uh, reason through a lot of religious things, and you know, isn't, isn't that very biblical? Most of the times, the simplest things are what's true in the Bible as opposed to the conglomerated mess of hundreds of years of councils that had decided how to defend positions and, and had woven all around. John Wycliffe, who we'll talk about a little bit, wrote a Bible as well, or translated a Bible, had some of these things uh, start popping back up. Autonomy of congregations that had elders and deacons, not a hierarchy. He preached that the Pope was Antichrist. So imagine where that got him. <laughs> 31 years after he died, here's how bad the church hated him. They dug his body up. They burned what was left of his bones and threw the ashes into a river. And if you were caught with anything that he had written, same happened to you. That was the links that uh, the church, and I put it in quotes, used at the time to try and propagate its message. 
There were other reformers in the 14 and 1500s in Italy and in Spain. And, and I throw those countries in there because a lot of times the way I, we are, the way I am, we think the, the world centers religiously in Plainview, Texas. <laughs> and it's the world religiously is like we know it. But a lot of these things happen in far off places that we've written off a long time ago as, they, hey, these people don't know anything about religion. But they were the very center of where a lot of this activity was happening. And what we're going to find out is where there's a good heart that wants to know the Bible, good things start, start to happen. And that's what's going to kind of come into play as these reform movements kind of gain traction. For about 200 years, these same 200 years we're talking about, 1,300 to 1,500, the popes got more and more corrupt. And if you go back and read in history, I'm not going to go into the gory details, you will find popes that fathered illegitimate children, that had uh, mistresses on the side, bishops, all sorts of crazy stuff. The people that were supposed to be the cornerstones of the religion were the most corrupt in every sort of way. And people got tired of that. They started asking why. The Renaissance, as we mentioned, uh, that's the Latin word, comes from the Latin word for rebirth. And so from the Dark Ages, people started to think about the individual again. There was a, a value placed on education and arts, being rational thinkers. And we put it in a negative sense now because taken to the extreme it can be, but humanism. But there was value in human life that had been erased uh, through the corruption of the church. Some people we remember... Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, you know, a lot of inventions happened back then, the, the beginning of a lot of uh, theories of physics, things that we kind of start as our baseline science. All that started at the same time. So people were starting to think again, as opposed to worrying were they going to get killed for being a heretic. Now there was a movement to think and to understand and to know. The Reformation itself actually began, the date, if you were to stamp it, was 1517 in Germany. Uh, it began over the sale of indulgences. Again, money going into the church for corrupt reasons. And the name most associated with that is, is Martin Luther. And, and as we read some of these names, you're going to recognize the names. And as I said this morning, I don't call out names to, to pick on anybody or to put anybody in a bad light. And I would encourage you to, to give grace to these folks. Most of them were three or four or ten generations into a system that's all they ever knew and they were trying to change something for the better uh, who knows what happened after they did what they tried to do he was born a catholic into a catholic family as a peasant had nothing but he got educated and turned his education to the bible he became a monk like a lot of the names that we're going to read that you'll, you'll recognize they were priests or monks and he's famous for the 95 theses that he nailed to the Catholic church door in Wittenberg, Germany that laid out line by line why it was crooked and wrong and anti-biblical to be selling indulgence and charging people money. That was revolutionary. It seems so simple to us. How can anybody ever get like that? But that was the world they lived in, and it was a revolution. It caused a revolution. Uh, he was treated as a heretic, but he, he was able through a, a wide variety, almost like the Apostle Paul, his friends kind of figured out where to go hide him and get him away from the authorities uh, 30 years later, maintaining this idea of a reformation and trying to get that done. Again, the word reformation, they were trying to reform the church as they knew it, which was the Catholic church. Take it and change it. In, in a sense, it was 
like taking a huge, huge uh, aircraft carrier and trying to turn it on a dime. And so you can imagine how difficult that is. Or think about how long it takes to stop a freight train. It takes miles and miles and miles. So they were jumping on trying to turn this big ship around. Uh, and here were his basic tenets that were justified by faith, not by all these crazy works that the church was charging people for. That you had to give money and you had to do all these acts of penance and you had to do all these things. It wasn't what we in our minds get uh, the idea of faith without works that we sometimes argue against now, but it was against all these crooked works that the church was making people do. The second was the priesthood of all believers. Remember the state they were in, the only person that could interpret the Bible for them was the priesthood. And so you as a member out there, me as a member, we weren't able or capable or even ordained or allowed by God to read and interpret the Bible for ourselves. And he said, that's not what the Bible says. That the individual has the right to interpret Scripture and to read it. And the final authority in religion is the Scripture, not the church. Remember, they'd for nearly two, well, 1,500 years, they'd been making crooked laws. And that wasn't the way that the Bible was written. So that's what he, he generally formed his reformation on, those ideas. And people could buy into that because their lives had been ruined by a corrupt church. And they could read the Bible. Remember, everybody, nearly everybody was illiterate all the way through the Dark Ages. But with the Renaissance, more and more people could read. And about this time... Reformation was happening all over Europe. Zwingli is a guy's name. Again, faith, uh, not the acts that the church demanded was what would make you pleasing to God. He advocated for the marriage of priests, which had caused so much trouble, and the Lord's Supper as a memorial, not as a sacrifice as the church had twisted it around to be. Although these two guys both wanted to reform, they couldn't get on the same page and could never figure out a way to get along and, and work together. Another reformer, kind of contemporary with them, John Calvin, a name that comes up a lot. Again, he went back to the Bible as authority, but in a sense, he kind of hung on to the idea of a hierarchy and that only the elect could interpret the Bible. But he, he taught that we could glorify God by living a holy life, but kind of where he really got off track was that people didn't have free will, that you were predestined, your eternity was predestined one way or another. Uh, right after he died, one of the people that followed him came along and he taught the opposite. There was free will, that we did have the ability to choose. This guy, the guy's name was Arminius. And you'll read about the Calvinist versus Arminianism arguments that have gone on. And what happened here? Their people were still physical. They were fighting wars with each other over this stuff. Uh, it, it was a shootout in lots of cases, or clubs and, and sticks. Other reformers were going on in Europe. A group called the Anabaptist, and that's not anti-Baptist, but it's really the, the prefix A-N-A, -A, which means again, baptize again, and it was a response to the infant baptism that had started. It rejected infant baptism, and so people were baptized again. Um, it advocated separation of the church and state. And you think about, we think about that as an American idea, 
But you think about the corruption that happened when the church and the state got together and it ended in the Inquisition where the church was trying you to be a heretic and giving you to the state to hang you. It really became very corrupt. And here's some names that you'll recognize. Menno Simmons uh, in the Netherlands about that time uh, started the Mennonite movement. Quakers, Baptists, all had their origins in this, this reform uh, era. In England, you also had the idea of the Renaissance and humanism going on. You had famous writers, Sir Thomas More, Ch Chaucer, the Canterbury Tales. And you had a break uh, with the Catholic Church. It wasn't necessarily in a, for a good reason. Uh, we all remember the story of Henry VIII. He wanted to get divorced, and the church wouldn't let him, so he went and created his own church. But there was a lot more going on than just that. Remember, the Catholic Church had all the, all the kings had them kind of by the neck and made them do what they wanted. So it was a political split as much as it was a religious split. Uh, but it, again, spurred the idea that the, the Catholic Church wasn't going to control everybody everywhere all the time. For a couple of generations, there was a lot of turmoil in England. Uh, his son, Edward, had more reform. He kind of threw in behind the Church of England, but it caused war between the Catholics and what became known as the Protestants. And we, we, we know the name Protestant religion now. It comes from the word protest or the Reformation era uh, is where that word comes from. Elizabeth, we've all heard of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, she was a Catholic, but she got tired of the fighting, and so she basically made laws that they would quit persecuting uh, the Protestants, those that weren't Catholics. During this same time, Bible translations started to propagate. So remember, most people couldn't read or write. There was no way to print. Remember, the first printing press was in the late 1400s. Uh, the Gutenberg Bible was printed there. It was in German. But English Bible started popping up. Uh, John Wycliffe that we read about from the, the early 1300s had translated the Bible from the Latin Vulgate, which had been a translation itself of something else. The Tyndale Bible was the first printed English Bible in this time frame. The Coverdale Bible was the first one that really was distributed very much. The Great Bible or Bishop's Bible was known as the official Bible, and it was a huge elaborate thing that only churches could afford. So that still the average person didn't have a Bible in their hands. That changed with the Geneva Bible, written in Switzerland. It was a Calvinist Bible. And by the late 1500s, the average home had one of those. It wasn't the official Bible. It wasn't sanctioned by the church, but there was starting to be a place where people could read the Bible. The King James Bible, as we know it, was, was revolutionary in a couple of ways. And... You know, we've said it a lot of times. When we study the Bible with people, if we can get the Bible in front of people and people can see it and read it, good hearts go to work. And so the King James Bible was the first time that had happened in hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. A written translation in the language of the people that were reading it at an expense or a price that they could afford to have. And so over the next 150 years, there were several translations of that, several updates and revisions. During this time, some additional manuscripts were found. And we're not going to go into the whole uh, writing of the Bible. That may be a, one of those in two or three years as we go down the road. Uh, but, but leave it to be said that it was revolutionary, and now the average person had access to the truth. 
The thing that we take for granted, people could read and see it for themselves. And back to Occam's razor, the simplest answer is often the, the best answer. Now people could see the simplicity of the gospel and the truth. And it really started. But remember, these things didn't happen overnight. They were 50 years and 100 years and 200 years for some of these things to happen. There were also a lot of private Bible translations. Most of us know, remember Sir Isaac Newton. He was the famous physicist. He had a translation of the Bible that he did. Noel Webster, the dictionary guy. Uh, there's a Webster version of the Bible. And so there were a lot of this as, as the Renaissance continued and people dabbled in lots of different things. In England, different churches or denominations had started to spring up. And one of the famous ones, because they came over to the United States soon thereafter, were the Puritans. Bunyan and Jonathan Edwards, if you remember reading your pilgrim uh, stuff when, when you were studying Thanksgiving in school. There were Swiss reformers, Dutch reformers, Presbyterians. And a lot of them were named after kind of what area they focused on. So Presbyterians focused on presbyters or elders or local leadership governed by a body of people. Quakers, uh, we talked about those a little bit earlier as being part of the Anabaptist movement. They were called Quakers because one of the things that they followed after is when the Spirit came on you, you started shaking uncontrollably, which we know is not true. But they were called Quakers because they physically quaked when that happened. The Baptists were in England as well. John Wesley and the Methodist, he was the one that kind of started that movement. They became Methodists because he... Uh, advocated a very specific way of living and kind of uh, in a derogatory manner they said they called the people that followed him Methodists because they lived after a particular method all the while Rome was losing their power so they threw up whatever they could uh, to try and prevent it from happening they had councils where they got together to try to plan against it make sure everybody understood that what they had been doing was right and true even though it had been corrupt Most of us have heard of the Jesuit priests that started up about this time. They're actually the Society of Jesus. And they almost became warriors again. There were civil wars all through Europe. From 1562 to 1590, so about a 36-year period, there were eight civil wars. And mainly it was Protestants fighting Catholics. And that physical nature continued until around 1600, uh, they begin to tolerate each other. So naturally, as those countries moved to the United States, guess what they brought with them? And in many cases, while they left where they were at, they were getting persecuted. They brought it with them, and then they carried on the same traits that they had grown up with, so to speak. The Jesuit priest came over. Remember, who is it? Cabeza de Vaca. Those of you that are Texas history people, there were Jesuit priests with him when he came and saw uh, Texas for the first time the Church of England basically was the founding group that founded Jamestown in 1607 there were Puritans and independents and separatists and Presbyterians and Congregationalists and kind of where it got to is Congregationalism the idea that I want to be independent and separate and do my own thing almost became the state religion of the colonies so they got tied in with the government, and guess what happened if you went against what they wanted you to do? You got outcast from society, and you kind of suffered the pains. Everybody passed that along if, if they weren't very careful. Again, Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, both Calvinists, 
those that believe in predestination or not free will or once saved, always saved, as we might sometimes call it, as well as the Arminians, which is, I didn't know about it till I'd moved to Oklahoma. There's a free will Baptist that believes just the opposite of what the Southern Baptists that, that we're familiar with generally believe, that you do have the free will to choose and you can be lost after you're saved. But all those had their, their roots in England and made the move over. That was the environment in the United States. Very similar, maybe further removed. So you think about how hard it would be for Rome to exercise any real authority across the ocean. Those things had all kind of faded away, so people weren't in fear of their lives anymore. But people still wanted to control with their religion. And this idea, this, this is the, the Maddox's term that he uses, undenominationalism. Getting rid of all these names and labels and trying to do what the Bible says. That's where it had kind of gotten to. And think about the things that had come into place. People were fed up with corruption. People were starting to think again from the, from the Renaissance. There was a Bible that people could actually read and have access to the truth. Now they were far removed from a lot of the violence and civil wars that had been going on. And people could now read the Bible. And so these different names, some I'd never heard of, they started popping up from these denominations. So James O'Kelly was an early one. He was an Episcopal and a Methodist that started promoting the ideas of going back to the Bible. Abner Jones, some of the names you'll probably recognize if you've read much Church of Christ history, Barton W. Stone. He was a Presbyterian minister. And one of the and a way you know about a lot of these people, they were very prolific writers. They were great preachers, very eloquent. Hundreds and thousands of people would come here and speak. But they also wrote a lot. And so one of the things that you go back and read uh, called The Last Will and Testament of the Springfield, Springfield Presbytery, where in Springfield, up in the, the east, Springfield, Massachusetts, they wrote an end to denominationalism as he knew it and tried to go back to the Bible. And the tenets, the, the point that he tried to make was trying to go back to the Bible. And he founded churches in Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. John Wright was a Baptist in Indiana that did some of the very similar things. Thomas Campbell's another name that you'll probably recognize. He was an Irish Presbyterian, so he immigrated from Ireland, where he was a Presbyterian minister to the United States, was a skilled preacher. He left denominationalism and had such a following that many people followed after him. And again, a similar declaration uh, this was actually in Washington County, Pennsylvania, a plea for Christians to unite based on the Bible. As somebody told me this morning, go back to what zero is. How do you know where to start if you don't go back to zero, back to the very foundation? And that's what this group of folks had gotten to. Go back to the Bible as your authority and your place for religion and promoted New Testament Christianity. So this is about 1800, 1810. Movement was... You know, the United States history was moving from the east to the west. And lots of things were happening in what you'd call maybe the Mid-South, Tennessee and Ohio. And that's uh, where a lot of this activity was. One of his children was Alexander Campbell, another name that you'll recognize. He didn't come to the United States when his father did, but, but followed him a few years later. He was a Presbyterian minister as well. He was married to a Presbyterian, and, and here's kind of the, 
I guess, a typical thought process, and it, it sounds very familiar to sometimes some of the things when we have to make hard decisions. He married a Presbyterian a few years later, had a baby, and guess what? She wanted to happen whenever the baby was born. Wanted the baby to be baptized as an infant because that's what she was familiar with. And he said, hey, I've got to go study this out. I want to go back and look at the Bible and see what it says about this particular topic. Well, he studied it out, concluded that the baby shouldn't be baptized. Well, not only that, as he was studying, he concluded that he hadn't been baptized the right way. And he discontinued his ministry until he was. So you see how good hearts reading the truth and being willing, willing to take the action that it takes to follow it kind of started these and kept these things in motion. And his influence was on his wife, father, mother, sister. They were all baptized again as well because they had all been baptized in a wrong way. And, and here's what's interesting. For 15 or 20 years after that, Alexander Campbell still associated very closely with the Baptists. He was prolific. Really, I guess at the very tail end of debates happened in my lifetime. I remember some small ones maybe in the, in the early 70s. But, you know, in the early 1800s all the way up to probably the 1950s, a lot of you probably remember, debates were a big deal. People would put their best speaker and defender on a particular point up against the other side and try to reason out and see who could win the argument in kind of a formalized way. And, and he became the Baptist representative against Presbyterians about baptism, about what it was, and it was a believers. Uh, there had to be someone who believed. He was involved in a couple of very famous ones. But if what's funny or odd, you think, well, he just read it and all came to this all at once. It wasn't until the second debate, you know, 10 or 15 years later, which it still baffles me that it lasted seven days. Surely it was just a few hours each night, not seven straight days. But it wasn't until then that even after he had had his whole family rebaptized and preached about baptism, that he came to the realization that baptism was essential for salvation. It took him time to process those things. And as we study with people, we realize sometimes it takes time for them to process things they've been doing for a lifetime to understand and mesh that with what the Bible says. He was the key author of something called the Christian Baptist. It was a, a circular, a periodical, or publication that went out. And its purpose was to attack every religious idea that Campbell believed to be a hindrance to. And I didn't, didn't get uh, Jerry to lead that song. The restoration of the ancient order of things. So as he read the Bible and read something that the churches he knew it wasn't practicing... He went back to the Bible and defended and said, here's why we should be doing this or not doing this, because that's what the Bible said. The very first uh, edition of this was to attack the Protestant clergy for being no different than the, the Catholic clergy. That, that same system, you think about people being people, the Protestants had done in, in many ways the very same things that the Catholics had done in creating another class of people somehow that was going to, be their way to get to God. He split with the Baptist. Eventually, the, the chasm and the difference in belief was too, too strong that he couldn't be shoulder to shoulder with them, but he continued to work among them. 
Here was a quote that came from, from him. If we're to heal the sick, we must work among them. And so as we teach the truth, sometimes we're around people that we may not agree with, but who needs the truth more than the one who is sick? And that was the way, that was the way he approached things. There was a famous sermon, 1827, so we've, we've gone down the road another 20, 15 or so, 20 years. A man by the name of Walter Scott, not Sir Walter Scott that we read back in England, but uh, another Presbyterian minister who had these restoration ideas, uh, preached a sermon that was entitled The Gospel Restored. And historically, that's the first time you can actually read it written down, what we call the plan of salvation. You know, we all take that as, you know, th those words aren't in the Bible. The concepts are in the Bible, but as far as being spelled out, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, uh, that's spelled out for the first time uh, in a sermon in 1827 by this guy. Barton Stone, that we read about a few slides earlier, and Alexander Campbell got together. But the difference in what, the, I guess, their collaboration and what it had been some of the other early reform uh, movements was there was no central government. There was no headquarters. There was no council meeting to decide what, did, what can we all agree on. They were believers working together according to New Testament example. And, and I'm not trying to set these guys up as heroes. I, again, back to the very first slide today, they were people just like we were people. They had their faults. If you go back and read some of the things they did, you'll think, man, how in the world could they ever come up with that idea? But they were people that were searching the Scriptures, trying to do what the Scriptures said. And that was a big, big difference from what religion had been for the hundreds of years leading up to that. And they worked together for over 10 years trying to iron out their differences and work together. You know, here's what's ironic as maybe as good a motives as they had by 1900 the work that they had established going back to the bible had started to digress again and even within the movement that what we think about as the churches of christ instruments were introduced in the early early uh, 1900s classes have been introduced there's been a clergy class that's been introduced and many of the same things that we've seen repeated over time have become repeated again. But it gives us a foundation and a place to start. And it's mandatory. It's not a choice for us, and we hear it a lot from this pulpit, for us to continually search to restore the New Testament church. We're not immune to all these things that people fell into. We've got to realize that bad change happens gradually a lot of times. It creeps in. It starts with little things and changes to big things. It generally doesn't happen overnight. But what, what I do know is that change generally happens a lot faster now than it did in the three and four hundreds because our communication is so much more instantaneous. Our ability to communicate with the whole world is almost instantaneous. And so ideas that may have taken hundreds of years to spread across the country or spread across the ocean, now those ideas, we can be exposed to them in, in months and years sometimes. So it's incumbent on us to realize that 
We've got to stay with the Bible. We've got to go back to the Bible as our ground zero and realize that change, whether for the bad or for the good, happens gradually. And it happens by honest hearts looking at the Bible and trying to do what the Bible says. And I want to close with this. Uh, remember the foundation of all that we, we try to do here and as we try to, to run our lives. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Let's make sure we stick with the Bible. We've all got opinions. Uh, I've got mine, and I wouldn't have it unless it was really good. And you've got yours because it's really good to you. But in the end, we've got to go back to ground zero. We've got to go back to what the Word says, what a lot of people died for. Not just Jesus. You know, he died the ultimate sacrifice, but lots of people died over the years to get the truth in a place that we could have access to it, and we do. We don't want to be the ones that flub it up, I guess, is a good way to say it. Let's stick with the truth. Uh, let's continually make that a priority. And uh, from generation to generation, let's don't let things slip like we've seen them over the years. Hope you've enjoyed the, the uh, two lessons today. I've enjoyed reading about it. There's a whole lot more stuff out there if you really like that sort of thing. Ultimately, what we want... What these folks wanted was for people to be saved, for people to come to know God and to turn their lives over to God. And if you've been taught, would like to be baptized and do that, we'd like to assist you with that tonight. Or if there's a way that we, you could, we could help you with prayers, we'd be glad to do that as well. Please come while we stand and sing.